loved you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Son of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer show! Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 339 of The Stupid Cancer Show, The Voice. What? Of Young Adult Cancer, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year Young Adult Survivor, broadcasting right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy leaving, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. This episode, we talk with Dr. Thomas Weber, president of the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation, and Katie Rich about the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation and their first ever early onset young adult colorectal summit coming up later this year, and a survivor spotlight on motivational speaker, heart transplant survivor, and pretty much you name the malady and she's got it and beaten it, Jessica Malore. And with that, our self ingratiating applause. Good evening, everyone. Mallory. Hello. Kenny. Hello. Dr. Sean Shapiro. Hey, 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 hey. You hey. got a haircut. I did. You look less Cro-Magnon. The, the days of Mountain Manor are numbered. <laughs> you are indeed lumberjackifying yourself. Yeah, it's almost getting springtime. Well, I mean, well, do you feel more manly on the slopes with Grizzle? I feel five pounds lighter. <laughs> with Grizzle? Yeah, it helps me shred the slopes a little easier. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. It gives you aerodynamics. Yeah. Very nice. You had a good weekend? Yeah, it was good. I was up at Jay Peak on the Canadian border. Had about eight inches of snow, so that was fun. So did we, and we weren't skiing. Well, well. <laughs> Mallory, hello. Hello. What are you up to? Oh, you know, just hanging out. Just hanging Having out? fun. Yeah? Getting ready uh, to use my brand new waffle iron. That's right. You know, yes. your day's exciting when the waffle iron shows up at work. Yes. It's an exciting moment for me. Kenny, I know you're exhausted like I am. Hello. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Kenny and I um, had a a, uh, a bit of a train wreck trip to Houston with the weather and cancellations and flights, and we wound up getting rerouted to the airport we were not leaving from and then returning to a different airport. So that was interesting, figuring that out. But we did make it to Houston for the inaugural 
YSC Summit, which is the largest conference for young women affected by breast cancer, put on by our friends at the Young Survival Coalition online at youngsurvival.org. What was your takeaway? Uh, It was great. It was energetic. It was informative. People were happy to see us there, as they always are. And uh, conversely, it was good to see them all. And we we sold pink shirts. We did. We kind of saw that a little bit, but they're good shirts. They might have been magenta. (laughs) Fair enough. No, we we exhibited there and lots of traffic. I think they had up 650 attendees. It was really nice at this gorgeous Hilton in um, in Houston. You probably spoke there. Your many speaking engagements. <laughs> She's nodding. Jessica Miller here in studio. By the way, good good evening to you. Hello. Yes. Um, yeah. The uh, YSC Summit. Very engaging. Very insightful. And kind of the sister companion charity exhibit event thing to CancerCon. Our older sister. Our older sister, definitely older sister. They were started in 1996, so they were as old as my brain tumor, which is a I, that's a pretty good margin of error to, to just have that. Anyway, speaking of, of a cancer count, Sean, I think you say speaking of tumors. <laughs> What's the latest on cancer count? I hear we're doing really well. We are currently at sixty-seven thousand seven hundred and thirty-four dollars raised. Wow, yeah. and that's over the original fifty thousand dollar goal. And more than what we raised last year. Wow. And we still have like six weeks to go. Yep. So keep on fundraising. That is crazy. And we're also doing a little contest. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Mal. Uh, The Get Busy Living Award. We're actually, the nomination period uh, was supposed to end tomorrow, but we are extending it until Saturday. So you can nominate someone who you think exemplifies getting busy living. And you can go to the website it's getbusyliving.ng. So it's get busy living with a period between the I, I and, the G- and, the, and the N. The <laughs> I, and the, I and the N. Yeah, so please nominate someone because I love getting to read all the lovely things people have to say about their friends. There's got to be like a dot .award domain at this point, like a getbusyliving.award or something like that. I'll look for it. Yeah, you're in charge. Wonderful. Well, I did want to finish up... Um, uh, the uh, top of the show here by talking about Vice, which is a show on HBO. They've been on the air for a while. Bill Maher uh, co-produced it, co-created it, and and it's kind of guerrilla journalism. They go to Africa, they go to Indonesia, they do child trafficking, Boko Haram, like really intense, crazy, crazy stuff. They risk their lives. And it's very well produced. The production value is very high. But they did a show, kind of a more demure show, really, but just about the science of cancer research and how this uh, this new science of using viruses or genetically modifying viruses that would normally kill you to go into your body like scud missiles or like drone strikes and just specifically target uh, cancer cells based on their genotype and how that genotype is different from the rest of your body's DNA. So it's intense because they have to like they have to sequence your genes and then they have to sequence the tumor and they compare the difference and then they. Tr- they, they design, that they take the bad parts out of the virus. They just kind of leave the engine. They put in the new driver, and the virus just goes through your bloodstream like any virus does, and it starts killing only the cells that it's told to. And I was really blown away by one specific, specific schematic. The show is called Vice Killing Cancer. It's on HBO Go um, and for, on the app and everything. It's really worth watching. But they did a video fluoroscopy. Uh, they did actually they did an MRI of a whole body of this guy with metastases all over his body in like very large white hot spots all over his body 
Then they did a video fluoroscopy of the virus in his bloodstream, and it matched up perfectly with where the tumors were. So the tumors knew exactly where to go, and now the science is what will they do once they get there? Will they actually know to kill the cancer cells, or do they just show up and dance? But this real, and Jessica, you were talking about that young woman, the the girl with ALL, who they cured. Yeah. What was her name? Emily Whitehead. Yeah. Incredible little girl. Yep. And her parents are amazing too. Uh, I had the chance to meet them at a, a few cancer conferences, and she, you would never know that anything happened to her. She's right. just so full of life. Yeah, and her story is profiled in the uh, in the Vice episode, Killing Cancer. But what I found most amazing was that she had to endure two week coma with 106 fever to come out of this disease free. So she could have died. I mean, she was the first. The parents knew she was terminal and they had to do something. This was the uh, you know uh, last chance kind of therapy, um, but it worked. Incredible. Really incredible. Um, any, uh, any other stuff going on? No? Nothing? It's all Crick- from the side of the table. Crickets? All right, crickets. Well, we were just talking to Jess, Jess Malore, but we're actually going to officially introduce her right now to the show. So, Jessica Malore survived a massive heart attack, heart transplant, leg amputation, and two, not one, count them two, bouts of cancer, all by the age of 20. What a great teenage life you must have had. And is now an, an international motivational speaker, public health advocate, and she joins us here Live in studio, please welcome Jessica Malore. Officially, welcome to the show. Thank you. And you were a drop-in guest a couple of episodes ago. Um, you just happened to be in town or you were here. You said, drop on by and show up. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. And I, I promised you a full spot because your story deserves a full spot. And uh, it, it truly is incredible. And it's kind of like, you know, life's not a contest, but let's call it a spade a spade. This is pretty terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call it terrible because I feel like well, you're still here. So it's not that terrible. <laughs> yeah, it I, I've always said I, I feel like I've been lucky in both good and bad ways. Right. Because the things that have happened to me have been gifts. You know, they've opened my eyes to different things in ways that I can help people. Right. And the challenges that I have faced, I've been able to overcome and my cancers, for example, were caught in early stages. I know not everyone is that fortunate, but I always try to remind myself that I'm here at the end of the day, and it gives me that greater appreciation for life. So let's go back to the beginning. How old were you when everything was fabulous and hadn't gotten mm-hmm. crappy yet? I was 16 years old, co-captain my tennis team, no history of any major health problems. And I was out at a restaurant with my family, feeling fine the whole day. All of a sudden... I started to feel dizzy and lightheaded, thought I was going to pass out, and they laid me on the ground, and when that subsided, I felt these pressure pains going from my chest to my neck and a heaviness in my arms. And I thought it was probably an allergic reaction to the food that I had eaten that seemed like you know, the worst it could be. Taco Bell? <laughs> 16 Taco Bell I, Italian food actually but I'm half Italian so I can't really use that as right. an excuse yeah uh, and then someone called 911 and I was like are you kidding me I right. have to go home I had choir auditions the next day to prepare for I didn't finish my homework you didn't have time for this I, exactly yeah exactly and I just think back if I had been home that night I might not be alive today right 
So I'm so fortunate that they called 911 because they took me to this local hospital. A cardiologist was called in, and they did an echocardiogram and determined that I was having a massive heart attack. Currently? Yeah. And what what happened was um, a clot had gotten lodged in the artery leading to the left side of my heart. Oh, wow. And was completely blocking all blood flow. And the way that the events unfolded, the doctor was looking at the screen, and my parents and I were looking at each other, and uh, he said, she's having a major event, and that just, you know, time Like a, like a dance event? What kind of event, right? <laughs> yeah, and he said, she's having a massive heart attack. And he told my parents in the hallway that I had a 20 to 30% chance of dying right then. I wasn't aware of that at the time. Right. But he said, we have to get her to another hospital to try to remove this clot. So they took me to a second hospital, and they were pretty confident there. They said 90% chance we should be Wait, so this entire time, you're having a heart attack for hours? For hours. And as as a woman, as a young female who's 16 years old and active on the tennis team, it's the last thing that you expect because uh, you always think of it as a man's disease. Right. Uh, and women exhibit these symptoms differently than men. So I'm fortunate that they decided to call a cardiologist to take right. this test. Cause I w- Versus was- the veterinarian that actually saw you, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was ready to go back to sleep. I was ready to do yeah. my homework. And the last thing I remember before they put me under was I'm going to have some story to tell my friends tomorrow at school. And Wait, so how many hours transpired between when you first collapsed and then when you finally had your surgery? So it was around dinner time, so probably around 7 o'clock when I had the initial heart attack. Right. And then uh, it was over the course of an evening that things went from bad to worse. And I was crashing my lungs were filling up with fluid, and things got so bad that the last rites were said for me because I wasn't expected to live through the night. And with every knock on the door, my parents thought, this is it. We've lost our daughter. Yeah. And finally, there was a knock, and they said, okay, you know, we have to prepare ourselves. And they said, we have a window up of opportunity. We're going to try to – we've stabilized her, and we've drained her lungs of fluid. We're going to try to get her a heart transplant at this other hospital. Right. But there's such a critical shortage of organ donors. There's yeah. like over 100,000 people waiting right now. So no hearts could save me. And they ended up implanting this experimental heart assist device that was the size of a large donut in my abdomen. And it connected to the left side of my heart because that had been destroyed. Right. And pumped the left side. And it ran on battery power. And so you were literally like the copper top girl. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, I had the heart attack on a Monday. That Friday, they put the LVAD within me. And within hours, uh, my parents had to make this heart-wrenching decision to amputate my left leg. Because it had been so severely. Well, uh, a balloon pump was put in the left leg. It uh, was used to assist with blood flow. Right. And they knew it was a risk that it could cut off my circulation in my leg. And I it did. And I got an infection in my leg. And it came down to a matter of my leg or my life because right. if the infection spread to this heart this machine, that would that have was been it. it. Right. Yeah. So so, it, so it's in the span of a, like what, a, a week? A week. Yeah. yeah. Less than a week. Wow. A few days. So I, um, they had to in, uh, induce paralysis at one point. 
right. uh, because my vital organs weren't getting enough oxygen. They thought I could be uh, permanently, they, that I could be permanently brain damaged. And I started to finally make a turnaround. Which you clearly are. <laughs> <laughs> permanently brain damaged. Evidence to the fact that you're so eloquent. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when I first woke up, I really had no idea what had happened to me. The last thing I remembered was they're going to remove this clot. Right. So I said, I have to be out of the hospital by the end of the week. Did I miss choir auditions? Right. You know, tell the tennis coach that I can't make the state tournament, but, you know, I'll be back soon. And, and you had no idea you had an amputation? I noticed, you know, it didn't sink in at <laughs> I noticed first. It wasn't, <laughs> something was missing. I know. It's crazy to think, but... I was under such heavy sedation. I was having all these hallucinations from all the operations that I noticed that one of my legs was shorter than the other. And they tried to tell me, and I wasn't processing it. They said, oh, they had to take it in order to save your life. And I was just like, oh, okay. You know, like right. someone told me what the weather was like. Yeah. Uh, and I think I actually asked my surgeon if it was going to grow back. <laughs> That's how <laughs> delusional I was right. at the time under all these anesthetics. Right. Um, Especially your mom is an iguana. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it did sink in. Actually, it started to really sink in when my parents showed me my picture on the, local, uh, the front page of the local newspaper. And it was this giant headline that said, Suddenly a teen's life put on hold. And it talked about me in the past tense, almost oh like my. it was my That's, own... Yeah obituary and it just made my future sound so uncertain and I wish that my parents hadn't shown me the article um so there was this moment where I was like where where does life go from here right uh all these cards started pouring in from school and I realized that life wasn't going to be the same sure so sorry so let's fast forward a tiny bit you got a prosthetic you went back to school Yes. You graduated, mm -hmm. and then uh, life wasn't done with you yet. It wasn't. So I got the heart transplant a few days before high school graduation. And but you waited, a, you waited a year? I waited about nine months. Okay. And in that time, it was but all... But that, that crazy donut inside you was working. It was working. Yeah. I was able to be a lead in the school musical, and I was the prom queen that year. And of course I, you were. <laughs> I went to... Uh, <laughs> to Disney World on a school choir trip. And for me, you know, I, I so connect with the your motto of get busy living because for me it was just about reclaiming my life and making the most of every day and not letting these things that had happened to me take over my life. I just sure. wanted to be a normal teenager again. And I applied to college, et cetera. So having this heart transplant, the timing was perfect because I was able to uh, start Princeton University three months after that and had a great year at Princeton. Because you're an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> well, this experience, I n never would have considered applying to Princeton. Like, I got great grades, and someone suggested it to me, but it, it always seemed like a pie-in-the-sky type of school. But going through this experience, I said to myself, what do I have to lose? Right. I was willing to take more risks. Mm -hmm and put myself out there. And I got accepted. I didn't know if I was going to get this hard in time. But uh, I said, I'll find a way. You know, even if I have to go on this heart assist device right. and change my batteries in between classes, yeah. I will find a way. 
So I had a wonderful freshman year. And, you know, I got around campus just fine on my prosthetic leg and with my heart transplant. And then the summer after freshman year, I, it was the 4th of July, and I felt this lump on my neck. And I panicked and told my parents, and they said, let's just get it checked out by a doctor. So we saw an ear, nose, and throat specialist who said, it's probably just a sinus infection, like an enlarged lymph node, Mm -hmm. but we'll keep an eye on it. And then the lump doubled in size two weeks later, and a second one grown, grew alongside of it. You were sprouting. Yeah, I was sprouting, yeah. And uh, we took a biopsy, and it turned out that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is... Completely unrelated to anything else that had happened to you. Well... Or is there a conspiracy theory? <laughs> there, there was some relation, because... As a heart transplant recipient, I have to take anti-rejection medication, which lowers your immune system. Right. So I had the Epstein-Barr virus. Like most of the population has been exposed at some point. I never actually had mono. Right. But usually it's, it's dormant in your system. So being immunosuppressed allowed it to become active in my system. Mm-hmm. And it mutated the cells. And so that was the source of both cancers that I had so it's this delicate balance you'll you're taking these medications that are saving your life right and I would not take that back you know for anything sure. this transplant is the reason I'm alive but at the same time it's a balance because it can put you at risk for other things so there's a consequence to cure of anything right in the sense that you know you're better than the alternative but now you're at risk and even before you had the cancer that is the cancer story People that are cured or treated or, or, or you know, um, disease-free may experience it again because of the treatments they went through. It's true. And right. that's the risk that you accept. Right. You know, unfortunately, we're not completely where we need to be in terms of treatment. Right. But at the same time, we've come such a long way. So talk us through. So non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, freshman year Princeton. Freshman year. So two I, years after this whole heart attack episode. Yeah. Well, so my first experience with an oncologist was uh, pretty traumatic. Uh, she handed me a box of tissues the second I entered the room and said, here, I make a lot of people cry in this room. I'm sorry you have to be here. A way to set the mood, Doc. Yeah, yeah. And she said, uh, she started talking about experimental treatment options and maintaining quality of life and was essentially... Was this staged? Did they know... It was at the beginning of stage two, but okay. they didn't know that at the time. Okay. I, I hadn't even had a full CAT scan, so we didn't know where it was located in my body. But it was just dismal. Right. And we fortunately decided to get a second opinion with someone who said, you're going to need chemotherapy and you're going to lose all your hair, but there's reason to think that this is so terrible. So, Dr. One, get your affairs in order. Dr. Two, you're going to be fine. <laughs> Which road do you go down? Yeah, it's pretty easy to to see um because the second doctor gave me hope yes and i was determined to go to school throughout all this so uh two weeks before the start of my sophomore year at princeton i had my first round of chemotherapy and i was able to time my treatments in between classes and the treatments were so cyclical that i was able to predict when i would feel bad wow uh, and I still managed to have a social life throughout all of this. It was, I was so grateful to be able to be in school 
during this process because um, it, it helps you forget. You know, it, it doesn't... Distraction therapy. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't make this uh, obstacle the primary focus of your life. And I didn't even tell many people at school that I was going through it because I didn't want people to look at me with pity or think that I was going to die. Right. I told myself, I, there's no way I'm dying. You know, I'm going to get through this. And the friends that did know were incredibly supportive. Good. Were you put into remission with this particular treatment? I was. Uh, by the end of my first semester of uh, sophomore year, which was um, probably four months later, I was in remission. But not for long. Well, <laughs> so so I graduated, you know, six and a half years into remission. Yeah. You're like, I've passed the big five-year mark. I'm in the clear. Good to go. Good to go. Good to go. And then I was out at a concert with a friend. Uh, I was living in New York at the time, and I felt another lump on my neck. This is six and a half years later. and You must have passed out. Uh, well, I, I had, to be fair, I had felt a number of lumps on my neck over the years, and we always had them biopsied, and they were always benign. Okay. But this time, it was another form of non-Hodgkin's. And I saw my doctor... This was a, a different oncologist who, because uh, the previous one had retired, and he started sit, talking about intensive chemotherapy that I would need, and you know survival statistics. Not that easy kind of chemo. Yeah, not not <laughs> the easy kind of chemo that I'd have to take a minimum of six months off from work. Right. And that I might need a a stem cell transplant. And did you? Fortunately, I did not. It was a serious consideration for a while, but we compared the pathologies. They were different forms of non-Hodgkin's. The first one was large B-cell, and the second one was Burkitt's. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, But they did consider that for a while. And for me, aside from confronting my mortality again, the scariest thing was what happens to my life. Because no matter what I've been through with my heart attack and with my first bout of cancer— I always relied on that balance, being around my friends, doing work, uh, just having this active life. And I was trying to picture myself sitting in this hospital bed, you know, having the, to take the time off from work and what was there to look forward to, like what would keep my sanity. Well, the bumper guards were taken off the alley by the yeah. time you became a young adult with yeah. a life outside of college. Exactly. I, about five, I don't want to rush this, but we have about five minutes left, and I really do want to get to what you've done with your life sure. since then because it's quite remarkable. <laughs> How did you go about, I mean, your story obviously is very meaty-worthy and, and the attention you get is well-deserved. Um, how did you get to be so recognized as a, as a public speaker? And, and I, I do want to talk, mention you have your own award, which is pretty cool, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Well... There was a lot of media coverage when I was waiting for the transplant. And the machine that I was on, the heart assist device, was experimental at the time. And I was doing more things on it than the average person. Uh, so I started to get requests from schools and businesses and other organizations to share my story. And I remember distinctly like speaking in front of little kids. And they're not afraid to ask anything. Right. And I loved it so much. Um, no matter where I spoke, that I knew it was something that I would want to do for the rest of my life because people would come and share their personal experiences. And it might not have been closely related to what I'd been through, 
but everyone goes through something. And I think about some of my friends who have lost parents, for example. That, to me, is devastating. I know it'll happen one day, but to lose your parents at a young age, I think would have affected me more than what I have been through. So that's why I say, like, my story is no better than anyone else's. Um, but it's given me this appreciation for this uh, the human condition that everyone goes through something. And that's why it's been my mission to connect with as many people as possible, to help them, to give them hope. Um, because I feel like these challenges have tried to knock me down and again and again, and I've had to climb back up. And we all have those moments where we're ready to give up. But if anything, you know, my story illustrates that you can get there and you can live not only a normal life, but an extraordinary life. And it gives you this opportunity to reach other people. Every patient and survivor has that opportunity to give others hope. And how's your health now? My health, knock on wood, is great. Um, I'm approaching six year, uh, 16 years with wow. my heart transplant. Wow. And uh, I've been in remission for seven years now. You still got like scanxiety problems and lumps biopsied or you're good? I, I don't have regular scans. I am followed um, by an oncologist and I get regular blood tests. And it's always lingering, you know, in the back of your mind, could this come back? But what I've learned is you can't live your life in fear, you know, um, because that's like letting cancer win. And so I just try to make the most of every day and I still make plans for the future. But like I say in all of my speeches, you need to dream as if you'll live forever, but live as if you only have today. Well said. Well said. Jessica Malore is a two-time young adult survivor and a heart attack transplant survivor before the age of 20, 16 years out. Princeton graduate, underachiever. Uh, motivational speaker, author, I predict one day possibly. Uh, what's your website? It's uh, jessicamalore.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-M-E-L-O-R-E. And your Twitter ha- Twitter handle? At Jessica Malore. Very consistent. <laughs> yes. Jessica, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay, Kenny. And now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something going to be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. I'm very tired tonight. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, all right. Denver, Colorado, Maplewood. Uh, Minnesota, Houston, Texas, New York, New York, and San Diego, California. And if you'd like to learn more about hosting your own meetup, visit stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Cancer is lonely. We've got a cure for that. It's talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app, bringing instant anonymous one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org to sign up to join our beta community. Actually, it's going to be in the app store in two weeks, instapeer.org. We launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick and your community actually wants to help you. 
Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new stuff for summer. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. On this episode, we are going to be profiling the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation and a new movement around young adult colorectal cancer. Joining us tonight, Katie Rich, stage four colon cancer survivor with three small children and a wonderful husband, Will, who lives in New Jersey. We will forgive her for living in New Jersey. And back from the uh, two years ago, Dr. Thomas Weber, MD, is a president, the president of the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation, pre- uh, professor of surgery at SUNY Downstate and the organizer of the nation's first early age onset young adult colorectal cancer summit. We're going to learn all about that. Please welcome back to the show, Tom Weber and Katie Rich. Welcome to the show. I always enjoy when we do shows that are specific to one type of cancer because we are technically an interfaith type of cancer organization. But it's really, colon cancer to me is something of really scary because, and we're going to talk about this tonight, um, is that uh, there's a, a tremendously uh, projected increase, a disproportionately projected increase in colon cancer incidence in young adults. And I, I want to just say that to frame uh, the purpose of the show through that lens. So uh, why don't we get started? Uh, Tom, um, or would you prefer to call Dr. Weber because you did earn the doctorate? <laughs> Tom's fine. Thank you so much. So let's get started. The Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation, tell us about the organization. Well, the uh, challenge is a uh, 501c3 mat, which uh, is really, as you suggested, focused on the colorectal cancer issue. Our mission is to promote awareness, but also uh, to raise funds to support uh, screening for the uninsured, which we have been doing for many years here in New York City with our partners, uh, the American Cancer Society and the New York City Council. Uh, We're also very committed to uh, supporting uh, research and supporting young investigators who are looking to focus uh, their research careers on colorectal cancer. So we have supported a range of travel scholarships for those individuals. And uh, this year we launched uh, an exciting new program Uh, where we're providing support for a young investigator to spend an entire year uh, working in a world-class laboratory, again, focused on, uh, in this instance, uh, the genetics of uh, early-age-onset colorectal cancer. And I really, I find that absolutely fascinating, and it is completely on track with the direction science is going around genetics, DNA, what are you made of? And I was hoping you might talk a little bit about this, this new science of your your DNA matters more in a sense than what type of cancer you actually have, correct? Well, uh, as many of your listeners will probably know, genetics is a big part of the issue, especially when we when we talk about early age onset. And in fact, uh, historically, an early age diagnosis uh, traditionally, if you will, has been a trigger for uh, providers and scientists to think about a genetic cause. But uh, I just want to underscore, as we go through the conversation this evening, that uh, on this issue of colorectal cancer before the age of 50, 
our, our best information is that less than 25% of that is due to one of the known uh, colorectal cancer uh, hereditary syndromes, such as Lynch syndrome or familial polyposis or even uh, MYH syndrome. And this is really, really important because uh, it means that we really need to be thinking very, very carefully about what else is contributing to this, to this increase, uh, which, again, some of your listeners will know, has some striking contrast to, to the known hereditary syndrome. So many of your listeners will know that, for example, Lynch is associated with right-sided uh, colon cancers. The, 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 uh, the increase in young age colon and rectal cancer really is focused on, on the left side and, and disturbingly rectal cancer. So we're seeing a, a dramatic increase actually starting age 20 across the country, uh, we're seeing these significant increases. So I just want to underscore the genetics is important, and we're going to stay focused on that, and, and we're actually investing in it heavily, but we really want to broaden the conversation, uh, and that's what the summit is all about, to really review what are the other risk factors and, and to what extent are they contributing uh, to this increase, and, and how can we how can we help shape the research agenda to really focus on, on the problem? And before we get to Katie, do you have any usual suspects, environment, air quality, food quality, or is, is, is it broader than that? Well, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. These are all, as you say, the, the usual suspects of, uh, of diet, uh, red meat consumption, increase in energy consumption, um, uh, lack of exercise, diabetes, all these things. But I have to tell you, Matt, uh, before your before your switchboard lights up, you know, sometimes when I talk about these things to some of our young survivors, they get upset and they say, "Wait a minute, you know, that's not me. You know, I was running marathons. My BMI was 21. Uh, I don't smoke. I don't drink. And I got this, you know, I got this damn disease. So uh, we're very cognizant of that. Uh, we want to focus on the the known potential risk factors, but we really need to broaden the conversation. And, and to get right to the point, we need to work with, if not indeed challenge, our epidemiology colleagues, our, our scientists who, who work on these issues, to look very carefully to see what else is contributing to the problem. Very well said. Now, now, Katie, um, <clears throat> you know, your story is, is incredibly compelling, and I, I look at it through the lens of that this is almost the, the archetype rationale for why young adult cancer matters and it, why it is just so different than getting cancer when you're 80. And you were pregnant, you gave birth, you were a mother, a young mother, newly married, and and this comes into play, and, and, and that's why it's different. This doesn't happen when you're 80. And I would love you to just talk us through, again, I, you, you wrote so eloquently in your bio here, but I, I wouldn't do it justice to read it rote. Um, but tell us about, you know, welcoming your third child and the, the surprise that came after that. Yeah, and I mean, that's exactly what it was. Um, I had seen my primary care doctor because I had, I had this pain in my rib cage soon after giving birth. Um, I thought they maybe broke a rib during my C-section or something. Um, and then they thought it was possibly my gallbladder. And that made sense because I had a family history of 
issues with gallbladders. And my primary care doctor, I'll never forget him saying, like, don't don't be too worried. You're 33. This is most likely um, your gallbladder or something else. And then when they did the sonogram, I was walking home from the sonogram. We lived in New York City at the time. And my primary care doctor called me because that's how bad it was. Um, and at the time, he still was pretty sure that I'd be okay. And it wasn't anything. He thought it was hematomas on my liver or... He gave me some other medical reasons for what could have showed up on this sonogram. Um, and he felt very confident that there was nothing to be majorly concerned about because I was so young. Um, he did take every precaution from there forward and he sent me for every test and, you know, things went very fast um, because the tumors on the liver were so large at the time. They didn't know they were tumors, but um, everything did go very quickly and I did get a diagnosis fast. Um, but it was completely left field. When I heard the words cancer, I, I was totally shocked, totally. Yeah. And then when I was given the statistics on my survival rate, it was just extremely scary and frightening. Right, and, and this, this goes to, and, and, and Tom can comment on this too, is young adults, and I believe this is actually not a map fact, but there is actual evidence behind what I'm about to say, that the overwhelming majority of young adults and adolescents diagnosed with cancer are diagnosed late stage because we are not traditionally symptomatic, or if we are, we're generally tossed aside by primary care as it's something else, as Jessica was articulating in her segment. You know, it's it'll come back in three months, let's watch it. That's not really something we typically want to hear. But let me go back to Tom. What is being done? Is, is that a conversation, maybe not necessarily through the lens of what uh, Colon Cancer Challenge is doing, but primary care... And maybe, ironically, in Katie's case, obstetrics and gynecology uh, are aware that this yeah. is something. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, you're absolutely right, Matt. And, uh, you know, our, our, our colleagues at the American Cancer Society and, and Dr. Rebecca Sagal, who's written about this, uh, this problem, and also our colleague uh, Dennis Annan at the University of Colorado and his team uh, have written about this. You're absolutely right. Uh, unfortunately, 86%, 86% of people diagnosed before the age of 50 are symptomatic. And, uh, and being symptomatic, as many of your listeners will know, uh, unfortunately is associated with a later, a later stage of uh, disease at presentation. And uh, actually, Dr. Annan from the University of Colorado does, does a very nice and, and balanced uh, review of this problem in one of his recent papers, uh, yes, there's no question that our primary providers and, and OBGYN physicians are, are very proud to be, uh, to be considered primary providers and on the front line of women's health. Our primary providers do need to uh, have uh, better educational support on these issues. Uh, but Dr. Annan reminds us that it's also sometimes very, very difficult for a young person just to grapple with uh, what is happening, uh, this couldn't really be serious at my age. Uh, so it's a complex equation, and uh, again, we're working very hard to, uh, to promote awareness both for patients, families, and providers so that we can really, we can really knock that 86% way back, way back. Right, because that's two sides of the coin. One is reducing your risk of stage four, perhaps, and the other one is not dying once you get it. Yeah, well, yeah, a, a difficult subject, but uh, 
but absolutely. And and as you're alluding to, the earlier the stage of diagnosis, uh, uh, the better folks are going to do. Uh, so one of the goals of the summit is actually to work with work with our healthcare professionals and the survivor community to produce very clear, well-articulated uh, templates with regard to earliest possible symptoms, also earliest possible signs such as anemia uh, and uh, perhaps stool in the blood, uh, blood in the stool as well, uh, and put all this together so that people people can. Uh, be more aware of what the risk factors are, work to moderate them, and also be aware of what the earliest possible uh, presentation could be so that we can promote and facilitate what, what we like to call earliest possible diagnosis because the earliest possible diagnosis uh, is most closely associated with the best possible outcome. Right. My, my friend Fran Drescher has a great quote. She said that the, the cure is stage one. And yes. if, if we could accept that and that's our goal, we'll take it. Well, you know, in colorectal cancer, the, the, the bitter irony, if you will, is the, the, cure, the cure should be stage zero. You know, right. uh, in, in the older adults, uh, we're fortunate we, we can provide screening that, that can remove polyps and, and, and keep it stage zero. But, but we have a larger challenge uh, with regard to folks under 50, and, and, and that's that's what we're here to talk about. So, Katie, let me let me dive into your 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 young adult story. So, young mother, third child, and in, in three years, congratulations! I don't know how you pull that off, but that's very <laughs> very impressive. Uh, we call the Irish twins in the Jew land. So, yes, um, yes. Um, but yes, so young mom, third kid. Your oldest was three. What does a young mother do? Not just to deal with childcare because they weren't in school yet. Um, but how do you talk to them? There's an emotion that they may not understand or at three, let alone, but they're going to see you crying or you be, maybe behaving differently. How do you manifest the strength and who do you lean on? Did you find books? Did you find peer support? Can you share with us what that was like for you to, to be a, a young mom with three children? Um, yes, I, it was extremely challenging. Um, but at the same time, it was my motivation, you know, um, I definitely leaned on my husband. My husband and I became so much stronger, and our relationship became so much tighter. Um, my extended family, my parents, my in-laws, um, friends came in, and they just flooded us. I mean, I, I was so overwhelmed by the support that we got. They set up uh, online like calendars where people signed up and brought us food. Um, my mom came in often. My father came in often. And they kind of took care of the kids when I was sick, after my chemo treatments or whatever. They would sort of take care of the children, and my husband would take care of me. Um, so it was very, it was actually an amazing experience for my husband and I to go through together. Um, and the children were just there to provide, you know, the laughs and the, the drive to, there's no option here. You know, once I stopped crying after, I don't know, two or three days after diagnosis, we just decided fight. This was only one option. We're fighting. There's no decisions to be made. We're going forward, you know. Um, so it was hard at times. You know, they were so little also, though, so we didn't have many, many conversations. We tried to keep it very brief. Um, I'll never forget, you know, when I had my port put in, that was very sensitive, and the baby would want to lay on me, and the, the baby wasn't able to. You know, it was just so sensitive, that area. 
or the middle child would constantly like put his head back against me or slam into it and it was very painful so we talked about like boo-boos and we kept it very um very childlike for them um we tried often not to talk about it because i didn't want them you know being scared or nervous they never heard the word cancer they just said you know mommy doesn't feel well and things like that you have a a beautiful sentence in your your bio that you sent over which is highly resonant It, it alludes to the fact that it's hard enough being a mom of three when you're well let alone having colon cancer yeah um my question is you know caregiving is is a major focus of of the young adult cancer movement in general it's very different to be a caregiver an elderly caregiver of an elderly spouse or or partner than a young adult caregiver to a young adult spouse or partner and who was there for your husband you know that was i feel like if there was ever a missing link that was missing you know there wasn't much. Um, he didn't have a good outlet. I, I felt like he's, his friends did, you know, try to provide support for him, but a lot of people on that end were just, I think so scared and so nervous for him. They didn't know what to do. Um, his friends definitely did reach out to him and try to provide that support, but he needed to be home with me also. So, you know, it was like, we want to take you out for a drink. We want to take you out for dinner, but he wanted to be with me. And he, my, I was definitely his first priority at all times. Um, so it was really difficult on him. And, and, you know, and he dealt with the kids mostly too, when I wasn't feeling well. So he's dealing with me and the kids and it was, it was really difficult for him. He did meet a couple, uh, friends through a support group we were in, um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering and we had another friend who happened to also be going through a similar process. So he had that husband. Um, but unless you've had this experience, it's really hard to relate to, you know? Absolutely. I, I want to go back to Tom now and talk a little about, about the science of screenings because I know this is always a heated debate. Um, so you mentioned this, uh, you know, a disproportionately small percentage of colon cancer is, is, is an, of known genetic risk. But when it is of known genetic risk, what is the young adult to do if their father or their grandfather has or their grandmother has colon cancer well uh, this is a this is a key point Matt and I, I appreciate you bringing it up uh, because because in this realm uh, there are there are some clear action steps so if you have a first-degree relative who has been affected there's there's a clear consensus across the American Cancer Society guidelines and the professional societies so if you have a first-degree relative who's been affected, the basic rule is that your your screening starts uh, 10 years earlier. That would be age 40. Or uh, if, if there are multiple folks in the family who are affected, then it's 10 years earlier than the earliest case in your family. Uh, so having a family history, first-degree relative family history, uh, n- not, not a great thing, but but uh, in that setting, uh, it's possible to be aware of the risk and to take steps to minimize the risk, identify polyps before they become cancerous, and, and remove them. So that, that, that's an arena where there are clear action steps. And similarly, uh, folks with inflammatory bowel disease, um, they will want to be working very closely with their providers and their gastroenterologists to be on close surveillance, uh, to be assessing the risk for possible 
malignancy. So those are two areas where uh, being aware of what can be done can be life-saving. So as an outcome of this summit and hopefully the influence that will be and the wisdom that will be generated out of it, is knowing that there is going to be this massive disproportionate increase in, in young younger colon cancer uh, diagnoses, um, is that going to change the screening rules, or are they going to stick with like the fact that it, it, it is what it is and it's not going to change? Well, I think uh, you know you're absolutely right. It's uh, it, it's it's a it's a minefield. Uh, you know, there there's certainly been a movement to step back and make some thirty thousand foot view comparisons, such as the incidence of of uh, cervical cancer at age 40 is very similar to to the incidence of colon and rectal cancer we're now seeing uh, at age 40 and of course screening recommendations are earlier for cervical cancer but unfortunately um, the professional societies haven't quite yet gotten there so I think one of the goals of the summit is to really be on top of this issue uh, and be looking for ways to better understand uh, to whom can we redirect uh, uh, precious screening and surveillance resources who will need it? So w- one goal clearly is to, is to broaden broaden our understanding of who is at risk. And then perhaps with, with, that, with that knowledge uh, backed up by some da- data, uh, we, we can make some changes in those recommendations. You know, you said something interesting at the top of the show, and and I've seen this too. It's the blame game where you didn't eat right, you didn't exercise enough, right. you did everything wrong. But then right. you're right. I was an athlete. I was vegan. I didn't go in the sun. I lived in a cave. I, I ate, you know, right. only or onions and pickles every day, whatever it is, you know. But you still got it. So you didn't do anything wrong if you still got it and did, quote, what you're supposed to do, unquote, but then we look at there was an article out of the University of Manchester, very controversial uh, in January, that cancer is just bad luck. And we just have to face the fact that it's bad luck. And they actually used George Burns in this white papered published journal that he lived to 101 smoking cigars and drinking every single day. And he didn't ever once go to the hospital in his life. Why? Good luck. So is there yeah. is there any validity in, in that dogma? Well, I certainly respect all the, all the uh, scientists who contributed to that body of work, uh, including no less a figure than uh, Bert Vogelstein at Hopkins, who has provided incredible insights for us into the, the genetics of, of colorectal cancer. But one of, the, one of the things that struck me when I was reading all that work, Matt, was, uh, uh, and I wanted to contact them to ask them about this, uh, I understand their position and, and I understand the modeling, but you know we see that um, we see that the incidence of these uh, of these diseases and and this particular cancer vary quite dramatically, you know, internationally, uh, and and as a function of the environment you're in, we know that's a fact. So so I'm still I don't know if cautiously optimistic is is the right set of words given the problem we're talking about. But I am cautiously optimistic that we will be able to discern those things that put people at risk. And and I think, again, one of the goals of the summit is to really broaden those questions. So, all right, uh, you eat well, you exercise well, you do everything right. 
but you're confronted with this disease. So what else is it in your environment? What else was in your environment at the time of gestation, if you will? Not, not, to, go, uh, not to get too melodramatic here, but I think we really need to broaden it. And some of these very same questions are being asked very effectively in other diseases, including, including breast cancer. There's some tremendous work going on now asking these questions. And, and the so-called exposome, if you will, all the things that we're exposed to, both in utero uh, and afterwards, that may well be having an impact. So, right. I, you know, I'm, I'm voting for a, a, a rational universe. <laughs> <laughs> How dare crazy. you, sir? Call me crazy, yeah. but, uh, you know, we're determined to, to uh, dig deeper and, and, and try and figure it out. So um, just quickly back to Katie, uh, I, you re- I read here that you are uh, one year post-surgery and that you actually ran a 5K this morning? No, that was the colon cancer challenge I did last March. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was one year post-surgery. Okay. And, um, I ran it, yes. Well, why didn't you run one this morning then? <laughs> I'm eight months pregnant. Oh, okay. <laughs> number four on the way. That's amazing. Well, actually, that number opens up a whole other conversation. A why, but number two, I'm kidding. I have twins, and I'm I'm done. But um, <laughs> this was a complete surprise. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Done. Done and done. Close your factory. It, it, it's it's yeah. pretty cheap and easy these days. I, uh, <laughs> I and um, so going back to fertility, another issue of young adults that's unique when you're not 80 did any of this conversation happen before and after your treatments that this might impact your capacity to not just potentially have a child but carry a child so that was something you know after i'd gone through everything i kind of looked back and i thought you know my oncologist really never had that conversation with me and i spoke to another person who was uh, very active in the cancer community and she looked at me and she said you didn't have time and I was diagnosed stage four, and it was very invasive. There was no time for fertility for me, like to do any egg saving or anything. Like I, I needed to start treatment immediately. I already had, and I had voiced also, you know, I had three children. We were very happy. We were not planning on having any more to begin with. Um, and my oncologist always said after my surgery and everything, you know, just, just be careful. You know, it is possible. It is possible. And obviously it is possible because now I'm having a fourth. Um, which was not planned. Um, so don't, don't tell him that until for, he's for like my 20. Population, I mean, for people out there that, that don't have any kids yet or, you know, and they have to make that decision, do you postpone treatment a little bit so that you can um, go through the fertility process prior to getting the chemo? And these are really big decisions that, yeah, someone in their 60s or 70s doesn't have to think about. Um, and it, it's a really, really hard decision. So just wrapping up, we have five minutes left, and I want to get back to, uh, to Tom with some other sciencey, nerdy questions, which are always exciting. The, um, the myth that cancer is a disease of the aged is now finally, I really believe, starting to shift, that yeah. it, it's, it's happening now in younger people. And, you know, less and less people are saying, oh, you had cancer? My grandma died from cancer. They say, oh, you had cancer? My friend from college had cancer. Definitely, and I'm, yeah. I'm just it, I, for whatever anthropologic nerdiness that represents, I'm actually seeing that, and it's, it's freaking me out. So, in yeah. terms of this invincibility, so the two barriers I see to like, you know, stage one or stage zero is the cure, is you know, young adults are invincible. Mm-hmm. We get less symptoms when bad things grow inside of us, 
yeah. then primary care is a barrier to reducing yeah. those those diagnoses. Right. You know, so you're you're kind of SOL without a paddle, and you got to make the most of it. You know, Katie, what is your message to other young adults out there, whether they've had cancer or not? Well, I mean, I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head. People are now saying like, oh yeah, you know, my friend recently passed away, or my friend was recently diagnosed, and it's you're hearing it so much more in the young population. And I think that's also when I was, I was diagnosed, we were flooded with so much love and support because it did hit home hard to a lot of my friends and family members. Um, and it was kind of a shock cause I was so young, but they still were starting to see that, that, wow, cancer does affect many more than my grandmother and my uncle and whatever older generation. Um, but again, it is so hard because exactly like you said, I, I ate well, I exercised, I was pretty close to a picture of health, you know, um, and I got this awful disease. So, it, and I had very few symptoms and if I had any, my pregnancies masked them. So it, it's really hard to say what to tell, you know, young people. Um, I think young people are starting to see that they're not invincible and you know, these awful, horrible things are happening younger and younger now, and it's kind of opening our eyes to the environment and our food and all those other things that you guys have, have mentioned. It's just, it's very scary. Well, I'm, we're glad you're here. I'm sure you're glad you're here as well, and as Thank your you. husband Thank and children you. and parents. Uh, so, Tom, final question, a little science-y. You know, where, what direction is the summit wanting to move towards? Is it legislation and policy that's going to change this is it medical education that's going to change this is it funding more research is it all of the above well i think it's safe to say uh, matt it really is it really is all of the all of the above and uh that's why we feel the summit is really important and uh you know we do we do hope that your listeners will will check it out at events.colancancerchallenge.org uh, and uh, we really, to the extent, the more folks we can get to participate, the better informed uh, we will all be. And, and it's going to be a fairly, I know time is short here, but it's going to be a unique uh, sort of scenario. We're going to have uh, cutting-edge uh, clinicians and researchers presenting their work to date on the issue. Uh, but then we're going to have facilitated discussion groups with survivors where uh, we're confident people will speak up about what they went through, what the challenges were, and, uh, you know, what their concerns are. Uh, and then with those two groups together, we, we hope to uh, work out a consensus with regard to the top priorities, top clinical and research priorities moving forward. And it'll be all of the above, just as you said, Matt. But we need, we need folks to participate to, to, move, to move the ball forward. Well, you know you can count on us. Thank you. All right. The website is coloncancerchallenge.org. Dr. Tom Weber, uh, professor of surgery at SUNY Downstate, president of the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation, and Katie Rich, stage four colon cancer survivor with three and four on the way. Uh, sorry, three with one on the way, four children, uh, and her husband from New Jersey. You guys are rock stars. Thank you for representing us. Thank you very much. All right. Thank good you night. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Bye-bye. powerful what do you think so powerful sorry that was to you jessica <laughs> like, so. yeah uh, especially because as a one, young woman fertility is something that i 
I've had to think about, you know, it was never a conversation. Yeah, we I didn't talk about that during your doctor. segment. Do you even know if you're fertile? I don't. Um, it's free to find out. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's something that I'll I didn't mean to... that dirty. I meant like you actually go to the doctor and get it. Yeah. Yeah. I also related because, you know, in my story, I had never done drugs. I didn't drink or smoke. So there's that whole concept like, what did I do wrong? I did everything right. Right. And I still got this. And you were prom queen too and you still got cancer. <laughs> Clearly, prom queen doesn't stop cancer. <laughs> but uh, you just, you just are thankful that you are one of the survivors. Yeah. And you can never forget those that didn't make it. And that's why I'm here in memory of, of them and in mem- and in honor of those that are still struggling and trying to get to the place that I am now as a survivor. So you always have to be grateful. There's been really just so much surge in just even the last 18 months that it's been so much more palpable that this conversation, like they would never have a summit on young adult colon cancer, ever. When did that happen? And here it is, and that's really exciting. And I, I didn't get to mention this, but you know, breast cancer is now happening in teenagers. Like our board chairman had an 11-year-old girl. Oh She's not gosh. preteen, yeah. 11-year-old with breast cancer. She breasts. I mean, she does, but like they're not developed. Prepubescent breast cancer is a thing now. Yeah, I, I knew someone in her 20s who had breast cancer, and right. to hear in your teens, it's it's just... It's the number one cancer in young adults now, breast cancer. It's Incredible. Anyway, this is why we do what we do. And with that said, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 339th episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Poking a stick and Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Jessica Malore. And Dr. Thomas Weber and Katie Rich from the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss a show by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck. And on behalf of myself and Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening to this episode, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks. Night, everybody.